Welcome to the Ink Feather Podcast, which explores the worlds of sci-fi and fantasy books through those who bring them to life. Every other week, we chat with authors and industry pros about their books, including new releases and old favorites. I'm Lauren Zurchin from the Ink Feather Collective, and this is episode 44, where we chat with best-selling author Christopher Paolini. So this is actually going to be a two-part interview. Uh, Christopher and I sat down and chatted about his new epic sci-fi space opera standalone, To Sleep in a Sea of Stars which just came out on September 15th and we wanted to do a two-part interview so that the first part is spoiler free and that way in case you haven't read the book or you haven't finished but you want to hear what he has to say you can dig right in Um, and in this book sorry I don't know if you can hear my birds behind me I apologize for the (laughs) ambiance my budgies are going crazy um So in this first interview, we basically dig into what it's been like this round on his publishing journey, and we talk about why this was the next story after the inheritance cycle that he wanted to dig into, how the creation of the story was for him, the research involved in learning the science, and all of that great stuff. So um, there are a few glitchy parts um, due to computer speeds, and so around like 12 minutes into the interview, 11 minutes, there's about a minute where his audio gets a little glitchy off and on. Uh, So I do apologize. I tried to do a little bit of work on it, but it was kind of beyond my control. So it's just about a minute's worth of off and on of that. So I do apologize, but I wanted to give you guys a heads up. Um, So yeah, so this is part one. And also just a quick reminder that the book has been out about a week, but there is still the tail end of his Uh, tour happening so you can still catch him virtually talking with other authors it goes for the next few days so if you want to check that out please jump on it immediately it is totally going to be worth your time because he is a delight Um, okay so now enjoy part one of this two-part interview and I will be bringing you part two in a few days so you won't have to wait very long where we dig a little deeper into the book itself but in this episode enjoy his you know story about why this is the book that came to life the way it did All right, now on to the interview. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Christopher. Welcome back to the Ink Feather Podcast. Hi, Lauren. Thanks for having me back. I'm excited to have you back. We are here to talk about this beautiful beast of a book that I have sitting beside me, um, To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. It is your new book that's coming out uh, very soon in like a couple of days. We're talking a few days before the release. It is a space opera, sci-fi, epic masterpiece. So I'm going to call it that because I'm freaking loving this book. Um, It's been really enjoyable to read and I'm just excited to pick your brain about it. Yeah, I mean, to use the vernacular of our time, it is a chunk. It is a chunk. It is like, eight. the arc is like 850 pages or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's not small, it's not big text either. It's pretty, it's on the smaller side. When I got the book, the book came, the arc came in a box, which for those of you who never get advanced copies of books who are listening, they usually just come in like mailers. And I got like a box, I was like, is this Amazon? What is happening? It was just, just a <laughs> giant book in my, I was like, this is the best ever so yeah it's but it's so oh it's so good I have so many things I want to talk about here and um so I'm excited because Christopher and I have talked about how we want to run this interview and there's things I want to talk about that are a little spoilery and he wants to also we're going to dig into those but we don't want to do that for people who maybe haven't read the book yet so we're actually going to do this interview in two parts we're going to have two separate podcast episodes we're going to release the first part and we're going to talk maybe broader topics and then 
The second episode will be a little more spoilery where I dig into maybe more details in the book itself. Um, so for those of you who are listening, you're actually going to get two different interviews, which is really exciting. So I'm excited to have that. And they're going to be pretty close together. So you can enjoy those. So yeah. And we had we sort of had that approach too with the the fork the witch and the worm last year. So yeah, we uh, did. Um, it was fun because I feel like I was your first like spoiler interview, and you were very like you were just like this is weird talking about this stuff because <laughs> the book hadn't come out yet. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess before we begin, in case we have any listeners who aren't really familiar with the book, maybe haven't read the blurb and blurb and just saw your name and was like, oh, I like his stuff. What's like the pitch of the book that you've been giving to people? Ooh, good question. Well, it is a big space adventure full of alien planets, uh, spaceships, lasers, heartache, explosion, and of course, tentacles. It is a story of first contact between humans and an alien uh, civilization, although I didn't write it thinking that it was a first contact story. I wrote it thinking it was the story of the main character, Kira Navarez, who is a xenobiologist and is out uh, helping survey uh, an a planet, a moon actually, for a potential colony when she ends up stumbling across an alien artifact that uh, turns her life upside down, transforms her, and sends the story racing off on this grand, grand adventure. Yeah. So my my goal with the book was to try to capture the sense of awe and wonder I feel when I you know look up at the stars at night and think about the future that humanity may have out in the galaxy someday. And... And that and I just wanted to write a big old love letter to the genre of science oh, fiction. Oh my gosh, I literally have here, I said, this is your love letter to space adventures that we won't get live long enough to get to see, isn't it? I literally <laughs> wrote that sentence and I was scrolling down just as you started talking. I'm like, funny you should say that. Well, you literally just said that because I remember a long time ago you talking, it was either in an interview or you tweeted or something where you were just like, I'm, I'm mad that I'm born now because I won't be able to get to do this stuff. So I love that you kind of took that dream of like all the cool stuff the what ifs and just kind of made your own version of that, which is, it's just such a delight to read. Um, I guess I want to kind of talk broad things first. So <laughs> I was doing the math. Uh, for those of you listening, Christopher and I even said earlier, I said, man, man we're getting old. Like I just turned 40. <laughs> you're not quite 40, but you're not that far away. <laughs> and yeah. you wrote these, you know, you wrote Aragon like 25 years ago, <laughs> almost around there. Like, this is like got to be a totally different publishing journey with a different publishing house. It's it's a sci-fi book. It's it's a space opera. It's like you're well into adulthood. Like what has this publishing journey been like? And it's been different. How has this been as you know as something a little you know new? That's like uh, six questions rolled into one. There, I think we could have a whole podcast just on that. Sorry, one topic. I just I was no, trying to no, do it, like. It, broad strokes of like because because really yeah. in my mind I guess each of those does have an interesting possible story but it was just when I was thinking about this too because you know you were with the same publishers the same editors for for forever and then you you know there's just so much about this that is different well I even talked about this in the afterward of the book which is that writing the writing to sleep took so long and in fact I got the idea for it all the way back in 2006 2007 that, you know, I'm not the same person I was when I began the book, uh, just mm -hmm. like, as I, I'm not the same person, I wasn't the same person at the end of the inheritance cycle as I was at the beginning of it. Yeah. So looking back at it, thinking about it, uh, especially since there was, there, there was so much rethinking and so many revisions that went into this book that it feels like this weird, strange dream, the process. 
you know, as I say in the af- in the afterward, you know, when I began the book, I didn't have a beard. I didn't have white in my beard. I was oh, in my no. mid. I, this is what I'm saying. I, We're getting old, man. It's weird. Like it's weird to be saying these things, you know. You know, I I, I didn't have. Um, you know, I was in my my mid to late twenties, and yeah. now I'm in my mid to late thirties. Yep. So it's been a heck of a journey, and. And yeah, it is. And it, and then of course it was a huge shift, um, moving, changing publishers and editors for this one. I'm still with my editor and publisher at Random House, but the Aragon books are technically classified as young adult mm-hmm. fiction since the main character is under 18. That's the, yes. that's the technical, um, classification of young adult. So we knew we were going to have to find a new home for to sleep and, uh, it, it was going to have to be an adult publisher, you know, yeah. either an imprint at, random house or somewhere else and you know it was just a big process looking for the best home for this book and uh, i ended up <clears throat> working with two great editors at tor uh davy and will who uh not only were working on my book uh, i found out later that partway through the process they got uh brandon sanderson i knew you were gonna uh, say sanderson <laughs> yeah, Rhythm of War got oh. dumped on them at the same time so oh, no. at least at least poor poor davy was uh having to having to do pull double duty on those and i i don't know how how she managed that double like two of the thickest books ever too by the way like his that series is is insane it's incredible but it's like his books are also equally massive in that series so that poor person must have been like holy crap like so much work the thing is is you know to sleep in a sea of stars is a huge book i mean it is longer than the than the game of thrones the first book in Mm. uh, song of ice and fire but Sanderson's are on a whole nother level. His yes. book is a hundred thousand words longer than oh to sleep in a sea of stars. That's crazy. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, so, so that was a new process working with different editors and a different publisher, mm. but, uh, it's been an amazing experience. I've learned a lot from it. Interesting. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm really glad to have had, uh, this process work out this way, you know, couldn't have asked for anything better. Quite honestly, uh, the yeah. book's been getting a great response from early readers. Tor, Tor has done a wonderful job promoting it. Yep. I, as I said, I've learned a lot from the process and the final product. I'm very proud of it. And physically it's a beautiful package. The hardcover it has, uh, actually has an embossed logo on underneath the dust jacket. Since this is the, it's the logo for the fractal verse, which is where this book is set. It's the, um, universe I've created for not just this story, but a whole bunch of other stories mm-hmm. I want to tell in the future. And, well, and I say in the future for me, but also in the real world, because the fractal verse encompasses the real world, the present day, as well as mm-hmm. the distant past and the far future. But I mean, I could keep talking on this topic, but it's, it really, we're, we're, creating this book has been a huge chunk of my life, just yeah. like the inheritance cycle. And I'm, I'm hoping that it strikes readers in much the same way, and there's a similar love for the characters in the world as with the inheritance cycle. Yeah, I definitely have. Uh, I want to dig into a little bit what you just said in our second part. Um, but it's, I, yeah, I guess I was just curious because having known you as long as I have and seeing your journey through that, and you know your relationship in the publishing world, and you know not that things are necessarily different, but they are because it's a different house. I was just. That was just me being frankly just curious. And I mean, <laughs> Tor is such a, like, they are just the icons of like sci-fi fantasy. So it's like mm-hmm. such a good house to be at for that. And um, yeah, they have a really great pre-order. I got, I signed up because I did the audio pre-order and I was, I got like a cool print that you drew and I got like, 
like holographic sticker and a magnet. I was and a pin. I was like, this is great. Like really cool swag to encourage people to pre-order. And they did it in such a way that it, you know, definitely was like, if you don't do it now, you won't get this prize. And we're not going to tell you what it is. And I was like, oh man, I have to do it now. Like I was already going to do it, but I immediately jumped on getting my copy because they really did kind of whet your appetite with the the possibilities of like the extra stuff that they were going to include too, which was really cool. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the audiobook. We were very fortunate to get the amazing Jennifer Hale to read the audiobook. This is her first uh, book that she's read. And for those who don't know, she's uh, literally has a Guinness World Record for um, the most prolific voice actress. And she's done everything from Carmen Sandiego mm. to she's been the voice of Cinderella for uh, Disney uh, for quite a while. She did Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings games, and wow. she even did she even did some uncredited work as Sephira for the Aragon video game, which is how she and I crossed paths um, originally. Huh. Uh, and and of course she did the Mass Effect video games. She was Fem Shep, uh, which is how I originally knew her. So, she, but this was her first audiobook. I approached her. I said, "Are you interested?" And she was, and she just she just knocked it out of the park. Uh, yeah, also, we're saving that conversation for part two, but I am <laughs> loving this audio book. I almost read exclusively audio this these days, and I, yes, uh, more to come on that. I'm like, now I keep pitching, I'm like, stay tuned for part two. Like, I keep getting <laughs> to say that every other sentence, which is great. So one of the questions I had, too, was you talked about, like, you had this initial idea in the late aughts and, like, in 08, 09, and then, you know, when Inheritance came out in 11, um, and so then you were like, okay, now what, which one? I mean, I know you've said in the past that you have like a filing cabinet of ideas. Why was this the one that bit in and held on, I guess, out of all the ones that, you know, the little bits you had kind of mm -hmm. jotted down? Well, partly because I thought it was a good idea. Yeah. Uh, but partly because, and you're going to laugh at this, because I thought I could do it fast. Um, I, you know, really? it was going to be a night. It was, it, well, so first of all, I liked that it was a change of pace. I liked yeah, that it was absolutely. a different genre. I liked that it was going to be a palate cleanser from fancy. But my original mental conception of the story was that it was going to be a fairly fast, you know, really briskly paced science fiction adventure that I could sort of knock out of the park um, in a couple of months and then I could move on to something else. And that really honestly got me into trouble. I'm not going to say I was cocky, but I was definitely overconfident, <laughs> which kind of makes sense because I'd, I'd spent, you know, over a decade working on this series, which is enormously popular. And, and I sort of had the attitude that, well, I've done this. It's been successful. I know what I'm doing. I can just jump into this next project and I can wing it a bit because I know what I'm doing. Mm. Well, Ultimately, I realized the problem was that I had gotten rusty. I had forgotten a number of the things that I learned when I was mm. building the story for Aragon. And, the, you know, because I just hadn't been doing that for over a decade. And you don't do something for a decade, you get a little rusty. So I essentially had to relearn how to tell a story. And a lot of the work that I think that I would have been doing in any case to get published if I'd been trying to get published later in life uh, the way most people do. So it was a humbling experience, but it was incredibly informative, and I don't think I'll ever make those same mistakes again. It's just, mm. I don't, honestly, my life's too short to make mistakes with yeah. every book. So, yeah, so I, I just, I, I, I sort of winged that first draft, and then, um, you know, I wasn't super happy with it. And then when my early readers read it, and specifically my sister Angela, she very gently let me know that it just wasn't working, and she was right. And so I 
tried to fix mm. it. I was essentially re rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Uh, so I was I was trying to save the work I had done by fixing the smaller things without restructuring things on a basic level. But and and I kept doing that up until I want to say late 26 no it was late 2017 when i finally i'd i'd done several big rewrites um i'd had my agent and editor look at it and they'd yeah. given input and then uh you know my editor at the time just again let me know that despite that extra work it was much better but it just wasn't quite clicking i feel and, like i remember talking to you or touching base with you around then maybe it was even i don't know when we talked last year i don't remember but i remember you being like uh, this book is going to kill me. <laughs> like, it was like when you yeah. were in the trenches of like, you had done most of the stuff, but it wasn't there. And you're like, uh, it was just like, oh my God, I'm in like, I'm in yeah. hell basically. So, so I had to decide, uh, it was like late 2017. I had to decide whether or not I was going to abandon the book or, oh or really like dig in and, and figure out what the story was. And, and I hate to give up. So yeah. I, I spent, I grabbed a notebook and in a week and a half, I wrote 200 pages of notes by hand and I just ripped apart everything in the book, every character, every theme, every structure, every event. And I figured out what I was actually trying to say, which is, and now of course, if this is what I should have done in the first place, right? And then I, I got my butt into gear and I, I wrote and I actually, despite my publishing, the, despite what the history of my, my publishing career, I'm actually a pretty fast writer. I just need to have the structure in place. So mm. that was then the uh, the draft I did after that formed the basis of the current version. There were a lot of revisions after that, a lot of additions, a lot of subtractions, a lot of edits, but that became the version we have now. It's weird. Like I, I hearing that, and I know that a lot of authors go through that. I, I interviewed Susan Dennard and she talked about that. She has she has YA books with Tor actually. Um, mm -hmm. and they're great, but she talked about the same thing. She had to like rip a, one of the most important, like pivotal ones apart. And it was just, it almost was just like, okay, everything's on the cutting floor. What do I, how do I do this? And like hearing that is it's simultaneously like nauseating and also <laughs> gave me goosebumps because it's also like, tell us how to succeed. Like you get to like lean in and do it. You know what I mean? Like it's, this is, this is the kind of stuff that people who want to write or want to create and want to do these big projects, whatever they are, you know, it, it, they're not just going to land in your lap easy. You have to really no. work for them. And, you know, it's kind of freeing to realize that you, people don't get things right the first time. At least mm -hmm. most people don't. And and that's okay. That's actually part of the process. And if, if you can accept that and come to terms with it, then you don't get as discouraged when these things happen. It's more like, well, this is just another step along the way of getting to where I ultimately want to get to. Mm. And of course, only you can decide if committing another year or two of your life to a project that isn't working is worth it. Yeah. In my case, I think it was. Absolutely. Some, sometimes it isn't. And that's, that's, you know, can be the sunk cost fallacy where just because you've spent that time, you feel like you have to keep spending it. And oftentimes that's not the case. And there was another thought I had that has slipped my mind, but I'm sure it'll jump back up at some point. That's right. But it's, yeah, so that that was incredibly uh, discouraging, and and also you know the 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 other thing is the length of the story made it that much harder. You know, if you're revising a 200 page book, I mean, I'm at the point where 150 200 pages is like you know that's a month or two of work, and then it's like okay, 
I could be done with an entire book at that point, but no, I'm not even halfway you, through. You're, you're a quarter you know? of the way through, not even, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember during edits, I was, oh, it was copy editing, I think, and I'm, I was pushing through it, pushing through it, and I'd been killing myself for a couple, as it was like two or three weeks at that point, and I looked at the page count, and it was like 500-some pages, and I still had 300-some pages to go, like 400, almost 400 big pages book. to go. A whole big yeah, book. Yeah, and I was like... I should be done. You're like, you idiot. What, what are you doing? Well, and I, I got the audio arc, and it's like 32 hours. I know. I know. But the reason for this, and I don't want people to get turned off by the size because... Oh, no. It reads the, fast. The reason for this... Yeah. The reason for this is I wanted to tell a complete story in one volume so that even though the universe is going to provide a setting for more stories and we may see these characters again you know, you will have a conclusion at the end of this book. You yeah. won't be left hanging for years and years. <laughs> as I've gotten older, as much as I love big fantasy and sci-fi series, yeah. I've really come to appreciate those standalones, both as a writer and, and as a reader. Mm -hmm. Same. Um, it's it's weird how I used to almost, like, abhor them. I was like, no, I don't. I have to have fantasy. I need to, or not fantasy series. I want to know. I, I need to stay invested with these characters. And I want to, but yeah, you're right. There's something very satisfying about getting connecting to that character getting fed as a reader and then having it tied up at the end and being like okay cool i can move on to something else and i well it's I, like if you if you look at lord of the rings if you look at the word counts of those books these days they'd be classified as kind of small to medium-sized oh. fantasy novels and that's and and those are long books a hundred percent like same thing with like dune i mean Dune is like 182,000 yep. some words and To Sleep is 308,000 words. So Dune is a big, big book. Um, actually, my goal, don't hold me to this, but my goal for my next two books is to write books that don't crack 350 pages. Have you even, you've never, uh, the short story one is the only one that's done that, isn't that? No, did Aragon uh, do that? Uh, no, no, Aragon was a little longer. Um, yeah, I'm like but, looking at my shelf right now. I did the short stories, and uh, I've already done a, pre a sequel novella for To Sleep, and I'm currently mm. working on a short prequel novel, which should be done in the next month or two. Great. And that, uh, assuming it works, and mm. that uh, is significantly shorter than To Sleep. So I think I have already have at least one story that is shorter, and I, I may have two. I mean... Gosh, that's it's just so interesting, you know, knowing you, hearing these stories, hearing your publishing journey through Aragon and all the things that you went through and how that journey was, and then like taking as long as you did to write this book and how it's so completely different in so many ways. Like it's just it's really interesting talking to you about this now. I'm so glad we got to do this. Um, it, it's even things like um, like I actually made a note here too. Like the research for this book must have been freaking bonkers because I think there were parts where it was like a sentence of fact that Kira like reveals. And I and I actually remember thinking like that probably took him forever to research that shit and like figure <laughs> that out because that was super complicated science. And you say it and you've integrated it in such a uh, relatable and easy way. It was very, you know, digestible and not uh, too technical. But I was seriously thinking, like, for him to know this, to say it in a sentence, you really had to know this stuff. Like, that must have been really interesting to completely immerse yourself into, like, just all of this futuristic scientific possibility and also what's happening now and how it could lead. Well, I'm glad it came across that way to you. I mean, that was, it fortunately, did. writing 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 fantasy was a 
good education on how to avoid info dumping. And I'm not claiming I always succeeded, but it gave me uh, a lot of experience in, you know, how do I try to convey large amounts of information to the reader? And I didn't want to info dump a ton of sci-fi techno babble on my readers because I've, I've read books like that. I'm yeah. sure a lot of our listeners have. Yeah. And I'll put up with it if I really love the, re- the, the author or if the techno babble is, you know, supremely interesting. But most times it just gets in the way of the story I'm actually interested in. So I didn't want to do that, but at the same time, yeah, I, I actually spent an entire year doing research for this book. It was most of, I want to say it was most of 2013, if I'm getting my years right here. Wow. And 2013, and it spilled into 2014. And the main reason was wanting to get some idea of, you know, what would be physically possible in the future in terms of, you know, weapons, space travel, computers, biotechnology, that sort of thing. But then on top of that, and this is the big one, was wanting to find uh, a means of faster than light travel that hadn't been used by some other big sci-fi franchise Mm -hmm. that didn't allow for time travel because most of these um, FTL systems do allow for time travel if you really look at the physics of it. And then um, lastly, there was a third point. That's okay. I was just like... <laughs> there was a third point. Oh, lastly, that di- the didn't contradict physics as we know it. Huh. Uh, obviously, you have to you know, find some new angles on mm. that and even bend a few things to make it work, but without you know, completely breaking physics as we know it. Of course, the solutions I found are fictitious, Yes, but they're grounded in some very real uh, theories. I even um, found a guy called... Um, his name is Greg Mahalik, and he's a... He's a rocket engineer in California. I think he works with Lockheed Martin um, or Boeing. I know it's Lockheed Martin. And uh, actually, he was recently quoted in a Wired article on uh, experimental space drives, which was really cool. But uh, he huh. uh, has a theory of everything that he's developed with some other people. And, uh, well, theory of everything may be the wrong term, but it's a theory that explains a lot of stuff. Let's put it that way. And that formed the basis for my FTL system. And he very kindly held my hand and walked me through a lot mm. of the technicalities and looked at, like, um, I have an, a, one of my appendices is is uh, an actual fake scientific paper on my on my FTL system. Is that in the ARC? Oh, it is. No, maybe? It is. Yeah, I was going to say it is. I see there's a bunch of them here. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, my gosh. There's all kinds of good stuff at the back. <laughs> I was just like (laughs) reading this and just thinking about, well, like even with Aragon though, you, you know, you weren't just like magic because it's magic. It was like still like there was like a energy cost and there were things that were still not just like whimsically because. So at least you had that foundation of knowing to have those boundaries and trying to stick within them, even though, like you said, you were stretching beyond them. Um, I think it's a question of how you, how your brain works, honestly, because mm-hmm. there, there. I mean, this has been discussed endlessly within the the fantasy community about the different types of magic. You know, yeah. you have your your more mythic magic, like Lord of the Rings, uh, or The Dark Is Rising by Susan Cooper. <laughs> you have, yeah, you 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 have more me- mechanistic or scientific forms of magic, like Sanderson or myself, to a degree. And I, I really think it just depends on the mood you're trying to convey to the reader. And because the, the, the mythological magic can be some of the most powerful storytelling devices out there. It can really uh, tap directly into emotions. But at the same time, I know how human beings 
work. And <laughs> we like finding advantages. We like finding exploits. It's just like cheats in a video game or exploits in a video game. And if magic existed, we would be busy ferreting out every little possibility and every little secret of it. Uh, I love the saying, though, Arthur C. Clarke, I believe, said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable to magic. And there's a corollary to that, which, again, I didn't invent, which is that any sufficiently explained system of magic is indistinguishable from science. I mean, you're not wrong. If you think about, like, elemental magic and, like, if, like, inertia and things like, yeah, I mean, you're right. That makes a lot of sense. But it, I guess it's just funny because people think of it in those two separate categories because it's uh, of, of all of the other things around the story. But yeah, I don't know. Well, and, 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 all of, and all of this research really was just to provide the backdrop yeah. for the story I actually wanted to tell. And, you know, it does inform the story to a degree and shape the story because it provides limitations and possibilities. But I tried not to let it take over what the story was. Mm, yeah. And, and again, I made a note here because, um, I found it, you know, it was just enough to satisfy my itch of wanting to understand, but it wasn't enough to make me like glaze over, <laughs> you know, no, no, was... that's, that's in the appendices. Okay. Well, okay. That's good to know. Um, if someone's not into the science, maybe they, they can know they don't have to, but if you are more curious, but yeah, I, I, but it was still again enough that I was like, this is interesting. Okay. Cause you're like, I don't know. There were just random sentences or paragraphs where you just do the explaining in such a nice concise way that I was like, okay, cool. This makes sense. And now we're moving on or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, I just figured the research just had to be, you know, cause again, it's a whole different genre. It's a different beast. So yeah, I just figured it was interesting. Well, I, I, another thing is, is I've certainly seen authors, you know, swap genres and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And for, for me personally, I really didn't want to just come in and not do justice to the genre of science fiction. It's mm. like, if I was going to do it, I was going to commit to doing as good of a job as I could for this story. Mm -hmm. You know, if it was a different type of sci-fi story, I would have approached it differently. But for this story, this is what I needed. And uh, I, I felt like if I was going to do this, that's what, that's what I had to commit to um, pursuing in terms of time, energy, resources, mm -hmm. re research, etc. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, kind of, this is not in the similar vein, but another note I have here too is like you have a female protagonist for the whole time. I mean, mm -hmm. it, was it, was it, did you find it different in any ways writing from a woman's perspective as the main, as the lead? I mean, people are people at the end of the day, but... People are people, and I have written female main characters before. Yes. There are a number of chapters from uh, Nasawada's point of view, uh, even Saphira's point of view mm -hmm. in the Inheritance Cycle. And I wrote... Actually, most of the story... All of the stories in, in Fork Witch Worm are from a female perspective, aside from Aragon's sort of interstitial material. You're right. It's from... Yes, we've got the Angela part. You're right. I didn't really think about yeah. that. I guess I just um, was thinking because it's like one big chunk from her view. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that would be the biggest difference right there is the fact that it is just so much, that uh, so much material with this one character. Were there any differences for me? Some. Uh, I, I really tried to just focus on doing justice to who this character is mm -hmm. as a person. Yeah. Irreg you know, regardless of male or female. I mean, there are often larger differences between individual men or individual women than there are between men and women. Genders, um, yeah. Agreed. 
and and trying to say something about stereotypical uh, gender differences or sexual differences is a real minefield, uh, and <laughs> was not what not what I was trying to address in this in this story. So whether or not I did a good job. I have to leave up to the readers. Uh, I was fortunate to have some very helpful feedback from uh, the female members of my family and, of course, my editor mm -hmm. uh, to, to on, on a few points, which I think I definitely needed some some feedback on. And I <laughs> I know enough about editing to listen when I get that sort of feedback. That's good. But overall, I, I really enjoyed writing Kira. And she's um, great. It's really yeah. great character. Really interesting. Um, being in her head this whole time. But yeah, I guess I was like, is this a challenge? I was, I guess I was like yeah. wondering if it, I didn't think it did because it, even though she's a woman, you write, it's like so much of the story is just her experiences and it's anything any, any person could go through in a sense. You well, know and, I mean? and, you know, I've, I've, I've seen one or two criticisms about the fact that there is some motivation with Kira with regard to her family and, uh, the people that she cares about, specifically a, a certain man in the story, and that that is very stereotypically female. And I think that's a slightly unfair criticism mm. because if I were writing this story, like if I flipped the, the the genders in this story, you know, and Kira was Kevin, let's say, was a male, I would have still told the same story. The same mm. events would still happen. The same setup would still happen. I, I wouldn't have changed it. The reason I didn't write a male main character, though, is I felt the story was more interesting with a female main character. Uh, if I think about, you know, and this is when I was growing up, of course, and which was <laughs> quite a while ago now as we're getting older. But, uh, you know, I always enjoyed characters like Sarah Connor and Ripley and yeah. more recently Furiosa from Mad Max. And there aren't enough of them. And... I kind of wanted to write that type of character uh, while letting her be her own person and being an individual. But I wanted to write that type of character because I just think there aren't enough of them. Mm. And I want to dig a little more into that in part two. So I think if we want to call it here, we can just give this little teaser and excite people for, um, you know, kind of the overall vibe of the story and what they can look forward to. And then, um, guys, if you tune back in, we're going to have a part two where we dig a little deeper and talk more specifics. And so um, if you want to listen to that, please come back and check it out. Uh, for now, I think we're going to say bye for part one. And, and before we transition to part two, I'll just say that uh, the book is releasing on September 15th. Uh, it's available wherever books are sold. And I am going to be doing a rather massive virtual <laughs> book tour starting on the 15th. And the information for that tour is on my social media and also on my website, paulini.net. And the first 100 people who register for each of the different events I'm doing are going to get a signed book plate. Uh, each book plate is unique to the event. Uh, it will cost you some money to register the, to the event. It's basically the cost of a book. You're buying a book, but you get it signed. And I'll be doing each event in conjunction with a whole bunch of different authors and personalities, including Brandon Sanderson, John Scalzi, and Lecky, um, uh, yeah, Jennifer, Jennifer Hale. Tad Williams and, uh, is your first night, isn't he? Tad Williams, and I'm also doing this for the UK, and we've got some great people there, like Arcady Martine. Uh, I think I'm saying her last name correctly. I'm horrible with names, which I'm always apologizing for. <laughs> um, 
uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky and a number of others. So it's it's a really cool yeah. uh, tour we've got set up. Uh, we're going to be talking. I'm going to be talking about the book. I'm going to be reading excerpts. Uh, you know, chatting with my co-host, uh, telling bad jokes, and it's just going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, and again, because it's all virtual, anywhere you are, you can tune in if you're interested, which is great. So exactly. Awesome. Okay, guys, well, stay tuned for part two. Bye. Bye.